You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good to see everyone, even though it's still on a screen. It's nice to see everyone. And uh, for another evening of uh, companions along the way, I'm particularly excited about tonight because uh, I really love the guy that we're going to be looking at. Let me begin with a passage from uh, 2 Timothy. And uh, I think this, uh, this will uh, frame our, our, our conversation tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 says this. This is what Paul says. It's kind of a reflection on his life. For he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for this beautiful day, and we thank you for the gift of technology that we can, uh, at least in a cyber kind of way, gather tonight uh, to look at one of your servants, John Newton. And so we pray that you would guide our conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, yeah, so John Newton is going to be our guy that we're going to be looking at tonight. One of the things that Newton says in the final years of his life, Newton uh, was asked by his longtime friend and biographer, Richard Cecil, if he was ever going to give up preaching. And this is what Newton says. He goes, what? He, should, uh, he said, uh, I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? Again, later on in Newton's life, uh, when he's uh, towards his, uh, his, his deathbed, when he is uh, in his 80s, um, a fellow named um, Reverend William Jay, uh, a guy that Newton mentored for quite a while, um, came up to Newton. And uh, Newton, at this stage, was hardly able to speak. And uh, Newton says these words. He says, my, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. And uh, that's just powerful stuff. Now, Newton, uh, who is John Newton? If I ask a lot of people who John Newton is, um, what I'm going to get is uh, one of two answers. The first answer is John Newton. Well, he's one of the most amazing, most important scientists that the world has ever seen. Because they're thinking I'm saying Isaac Newton. <laughs> so it's not Isaac Newton. But if they do know John Newton, and they say, oh, who's John Newton? They're like, John Newton. Well, he was the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And that's true. He did write Amazing Grace. Um, but, oh, that misses so much. There's so much more. Now, um, <laughs> you know how a lot of people would love to have a picture with, um, um, with uh, Michael Jordan and uh, Wayne Gretzky and some of these key, uh, you know, LeBron James. Okay, let me show you. This is my, my big, I'd rather have a picture with this person than Michael Jordan. Now this person, I'm sure you are all quite familiar with her. <laughs> her name is Marilyn Roos. And Marilyn Roos is actually the world's leading expert on John Newton. She, that's just, just a, a smidgen of her, her whole house is a library, basically, of all of Newton's stuff. 
and she has um, written so much on Newton and she's done an incredible work of annotating Newton's letters. And so I actually had tea with her um, in a place called Kettering. And uh, it, was, it was quite an honor to meet her. And she showed me one of the, the manuscripts that she was working on, um, one of uh, Newton's diaries. And look at that, right? So she's got to transcribe that and uh, then also make notations about, you know, who's Newton referring to, what's the, it's, 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 it's detail work, but she's been doing this for years and years and years. And she's very kind. And uh, if I, if I need some um, research stuff, she's always quick to, uh, to send me some stuff. So yeah, she's, she's a really remarkable person. Um, I actually had a chance back in uh, 2015 to uh, visit um, Newton's churches. And uh, this is, uh, it's an interesting story. We'll talk about it later, but uh, this is where Newton um, was buried. And it's interesting, it's kind of tucked away in the middle of kind of hiding in the back of this graveyard, which uh, then there's a story to that. And if I don't come back to it, re remind me about it. But, um, one of the things, a lot of people, if they do know about Newton, again, if they, they know is, uh, is him. And some people maybe know a little bit about his background as a slave trader, be involved in the slave trade. And, and, and that is true. And that certainly is part of his story. But his, his most important part of his story is his life as a pastor. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But I want to give you a little bit of the story of Newton, because his background is, is absolutely remarkable. So let me tell you a little bit about his story. So John Newton. Oh, yeah, it's uh, kind of his, his epitaph in um, one of his, uh, his second church, the one he was in in London. Uh, let me tell you about, uh, about um, Newton. Uh, his father's name was John as well, and his father was a pretty rough-and-tumble sea captain. And, you know, being a sea captain for quite a while, uh, his father, though he was educated by Jesuits, he really had no time for Christianity at all. His mother, though, his mother was a dissenter. And a dissenter means she, you know, she was a Christian, but she wasn't um, part of the Church of England. Um, and, but she taught Newton a lot of things when Newton was just a boy. She, she taught him how to read scripture, how to memorize catechisms. She taught him uh, to sing some hymns. But the sad part is when Newton was only seven years old, his mother uh, suddenly died and his, his father remarried and that wasn't a really good scene for for John at the age of 11 uh, John Newton uh, the son goes with his dad on his first uh, voyage and he begins to learn the trade of a seaman and he traveled around the Mediterranean they're trading wool for pretty much anything they could um, and about seven, so Newton's born in 1725 so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind in 1737, so what's that, uh, when he was about 12 years old, um, Newton, Newton has a, a couple of near-death experiences. One time he almost dies uh, in, a, in a horse accident, and the other one, um, he's about to get on a boat, doesn't go on the boat. This other guy goes on the boat, and the, and the boat capsizes, and the people drown. And, and Newton begins to think, wow, you know, that has a sense of providence. It's like, what if that were me? What, what if that happened to me? Why am I still alive? And and that, that can have a, a sobering effect. I, I still remember my time in China when I was uh, on this bus and the bus was overflowing and the bus driver was driving crazy and he takes this corner and, and we're right along the side of the Yangtze River and a sheer cliff down into the river. And, and the bus for what seemed like an hour was on two wheels. And I'm sure it was just like for a second or two. But uh, man, I thought I was going to die. And that, uh, that kind of wakes you up a little bit. 
1739, um, Newton, he reads a skeptic, this uh, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, he reads his writing, and Newton says, he says goodbye to any Christian background he had. He just kind of turns his back on that. He turns his back on God. Now, his dad has this idea. He's got plans for his son, and he says to his son, he says he wants him to manage a plantation in Jamaica. And so he says, you're gonna, we're, I'm going to take you to Jamaica. You're going to be in charge of this plantation. That's, that's my job for you. And, and Newton's uh, but before he goes, the dad asks him to do this one errand, to go to this place called Chatham, you know, to, just to do this one errand. Well, he goes there, and he meets this family, the, uh, the Catlett family, and uh, he meets the daughter, this young girl. She was only 13 years old. Newton was about 18, but he falls in love with her, and her name's, uh, I think her name Mary, but she goes by Polly, and, um, and she, he falls head over heels in love with her. And so he doesn't want to go to Jamaica. <laughs> so he intentionally drags his heels, doesn't he? So he misses the ship that was supposed to take him to Jamaica, and his dad is furious. In 1742, he goes on his second voyage, but this time when he comes back, he comes back as a hardened sailor. He's, he's kind of experienced all the dark side of, uh, of uh, being a sailor in the 18th century. Uh, 1742, he gets press gang. You, you see, here's a little, little picture of a press gang where they, you know, these thugs would come along and they'd force you into uh, working on a ship, which if you worked on a ship, uh, there's a good chance you're going to die. You know, the, um, the mortality rate was pretty high for people who worked on ships in the 18th century. Um, so he gets uh, press gang onto the ship called the Harwich. And he meets this guy named Job Lewis. And Job Lewis was this devout Christian. And Newton's like, why are you a Christian? Are you stupid or what? And Job Lewis is this young, kind of naive Christian. And Newton goes after him big time, just mocks him for being a Christian and makes fun of him. And, um, and then he loses touch with this guy. Um, in, in that year, Newton comes, comes back to England and he's supposed to get back on the ship because it's a, it's a, um, it's a uh, Her Majesty's uh, service ship. And uh, Newton uh, overstays his leave and gets into a lot of trouble. And, and, and he tries to run away, gets caught by a press gang, gets flogged, degraded, uh, no longer an officer, but just a, uh, to the rank of seaman. And he, Newton's in a really dark place. And uh, he's, he oscillates between two things. One, he wants to either commit suicide or he wants to kill the captain. And he's actually, what should, which one should I do? Should I kill the captain or should I commit suicide? And uh, he lived life with utmost abandon. There's a story of Newton on one of the ships and the wind blows and his hat falls off, goes overboard. And Newton's about ready to jump overboard to get it, but he can't swim. And uh, he's, his life was just a mess. Now the captain, the captain on this ship is, is not a big fan of Newton. And he thinks he's got a Joan on board. And so he kind of, he finds this other ship and he trades Newton. For, so he basically get off my ship. And Newton ends up on this other ship and um, on a merchant ship. Now, this is a fascinating story. Let me get, this is so interesting. So Newton, uh, like this is like this, this is an incredible story. So Newton ends up, um, he ends up, um, on this new ship, he, gets, he ends up meeting this person named Amos Clow, and he works for him. Now, this is during the time of the slave trade, and this is theme's going to come up again and again. And um, he works at a slave factory off the coast of Africa on the Plantain Island. And um, 
this Amos cloud leaves and Newton's left on this eye on the on the, on the Plantain Islands, and um, he's this fellow named Amos Clow, he, he, his, his wife, sort of wife, was this uh, African woman. And she basically treats Newton as a slave. And Newton actually spent quite a while basically living as a slave under an African in, at this place. It's just a fascinating story. And Newton, he almost starves to death. He has no food. Um, and uh, he's, you know, there's one story where he's try he's so hungry and that she offers him food and, and intentionally like throws it on the ground. He has to basically pick it off off the ground. And, and some of the, some of the uh, slaves that were living around the, uh, the, uh, the home, um, they were the ones that would uh, give, they'd sneak Newton some food so that he would survive or he'd have to eat roots and different things. So it's, it's, and, and then she, she actually mocks him. She says, because he's planting these lime, lime trees. And she says to him, you know, you're, you're probably going to see these lime trees grow up because you're never going to get off this island. You're, you're basically going to live as a slave. And uh, he almost dies. And now through circumstances, he eventually breaks free and joins this other operation in Sierra Leone. Now, all along, all along, so this is a fascinating story, all along the dad, Newton's father, is looking for him. And so he, he asked this one uh, captain of a ship, saying, you know, keep your eyes open for my son, John Newton. He's somewhere on the coast of Africa. And, um, and so this one, and it, it, it seemed like coincidence, but uh, they, uh, this captain stops at this one spot and says, do you know John Newton? And it was, I think it was Newton or Newton and his friend. And, uh, and the captain says, yeah, your dad um, wants you to come back. You have to realize he's left you a lot of money. And he's going to so you could live on, you know, 400 pounds a year, which is a lot of money. Uh, just come on back. Hey, and if you come back you can stay in my quarters and, and uh, you don't have to do any work on the ship and, 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 and you're going to be rich. So come on back. And Newton's like, wow, that sounds pretty good. So Newton said, all right, I'll get on. He's, he's reluctant, but he gets on the ship. Well, the captain had lied the whole thing. There was no, there was no legacy. There was no inheritance or none of it was true, but he did whatever he could to get him back. And so he gets them back. He gets them back. But on the way back is interesting. There's a story. Um, in 1748, uh, Newton's on the ship and the ship hits a storm and it looks like the ship's going to go down. And Newton, for the first time, starts to consider, you know, wh where will he be if he dies? And during that time, he had come across a book. He came across The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. He started to read that. And so something starts to happen and he thinks he's going to die. And he prays, and he hasn't prayed for a long time. So he prays, and, and uh, shortly after that, somebody on the ship looks out, and they go, land ho, right? And they're like, yay, we're saved. But it turns out there wasn't land, and the ship almost goes down. They bear, they limp their way into, uh, into Ireland, um, and, and that's uh, and Newton. But that really shakes up Newton. And so what happens after that? Uh, Newton ends up, when he goes back, he starts to wonder, maybe God is involved in his life more than he realizes. Uh, he goes back and um, a few things happen along the way, like another near-death experience. Um, he's about to go up on, on deck. And so he's about to climb up on deck. And uh, just before he hesitates for a moment, and this one of his shipmates goes up on deck ahead of him, and he gets swept overboard. And Newton's again, 
again, why, why didn't this happen to me? Why am I still alive? Um, he goes back, he makes it back to England. He asked Polly to marry him. And she says, no, <laughs> smart girl. Um, but he asked her again, he's so in love with her. And she finally says, yes. And he marries her and they live uh, 40 years together. And oh, I'll tell you, there's, there's the letters between Newton and his wife are available. You can read them. Oh, they're so, they're so romantic. They're so full of life. They're beautiful letters. So he marries her, he gets a new ship and he participates um, in the slave trade for a while. Now, interestingly, while he's on board, who does he, he has somebody on his ship. And do you know who he happens to have on his ship? Remember that young guy, that Joe Lewis, the Christian? He bumps into Joe Lewis, but by this time, Joe Lewis is no longer a Christian. He turned his faith on, he turned his back on his faith. He was this hard drinking, hard swearing. And Newton's like, no, 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 no. You got to come back. And um, Joe Lewis, he was too far gone. He gets sick and he dies. And Newton just, that really hits, it hits Newton. Uh, Newton, even though he had kind of turned his faith to Jesus, um, still lives a pretty rough life. And it's not until he becomes friends with a guy named Alexander Clooney that things begin to turn around. And then suddenly when Newton was back in, um, in uh, I think it was Liverpool, um, he has a seizure. And we're not sure what happened, but he gets really sick. So sick that he can't, um, he can't captain a ship anymore. And so he leaves the slave trade and he ends up working as a tide surveyor in Liverpool. And that marks a new direction in life. See, we haven't got to Newton as a pastor. Isn't that an amazing story? I mean, that happens to, to one guy. It's, it's crazy, crazy. Um, any, um, any, any questions on that? Just unmute yourself if you have any questions. It's a fascinating story. You can read it. He, he writes his, his story. So, um, and his, when he writes his story, uh, becomes a bestseller, no doubt. Yeah. So uh, it's worth reading and it's, it's very readable. But while he's in Liverpool, he ends up hanging around with some pretty big name evangelicals of the time. In particular, a guy named uh, George Whitfield. And George Whitfield is like the evangelist of the 18th century. One of the greatest probably one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church next to Billy Graham and the apostle Paul. <laughs> um, Whitfield is huge. He is one of the biggest evangelists. Well, Newton hangs around with him and Newton learns a lot from him. In fact, people see Newton hanging around with Whitfield. They call him young Whitfield uh, because he's always <laughs> hanging around with him. And then, so uh, Newton start to ask the question, okay, God has saved me. Why has he saved me? I wonder whether or not he is calling me into ministry. Now, Newton is self-taught. Uh, he teaches himself geometry on the sands of Africa. Um, he's he's brilliant mind, but he has no formal education. But he wonders whether or not God's calling him into ministry. And so he, he takes six weeks, I think, I think it was six weeks, and uh, to think and to pray about whether or not God was calling him into ministry. And it's quite cool because he, he keeps a journal of, of, of this whole process. And you can get them. I give this book. Um, I, I buy copies of this. And I give them to young men and young women asking the question, should I go into ministry? And I say, well, 
hey, learn from Newton. He, he'll, he'll, he'll show you the process. So that's very cool. And so it comes at the very end where uh, Newton, the end of the six weeks, he says, if it shall please thee, O Lord, to magnify thy mercy to a poor wretch, a wretch like me, who had not long since was possessed by a legion of unclean spirits, wounding and tearing himself all, all, uh, all about him. O Lord, call and I will answer. Send and I will go. Let me know thou hast accepted me. Encourage me to go on in faith. And uh, yeah, and so he ends up through a series of circumstances landing a position as a curate in the town called Olney. Not only, but Olney, O-L-N-E-Y. There it is. Isn't that a beautiful church on the River Ouse? And uh, this is where he ends up pastoring from uh, 1764 to 1780. Uh, I've been there. Let me show you my pictures. There we go. These are all my pics. Um, that's the church that he was in. Uh, that uh, house is called the Great House. That's where he lived. And he uh, had a lot of uh, meetings and a lot of teaching that took place in there. And that bottom thing is just this, uh, it's like a tool shed, but it was at the back of um, this property. And I believe that that was a linking property to a guy named William Cooper. We'll talk about him in a little bit. So what was Newton like as a pastor? Well, he, uh, he was a sought after guy. Everybody wrote letters to Newton to get advice. And one of the things is, I think is because of his background. Um, as a pastor, he didn't dress up like a pastor with a collar and everything. He wore his, his, his sailor's garb. <laughs> Uh, most of the time. And uh, he did a lot of really cool work. He had a really interesting ministry with children's ministry. And he had a rich friend, John Thornton, a very important guy. John, John Thornton was uh, one of the second richest men in uh, Europe, banker and evangelical. And uh, Newton would always ask him for money to buy books to give away to kids and Bibles and stuff like that. And he had his, uh, an amazing ministry to, uh, especially to children. He'd visit people. Uh, he'd give evening uh, lectures and he'd try to make them a little more creative. So he'd do a series on Handel's Messiah or he'd do a series on, are you ready? Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Um, he was a letter writer. Um, his first, and I always tell young people this. I, see, I've, I've led a lot of young people through the letters of Newton because um, they're so worth reading. And uh, Newton, and this always comforts me because John Newton's a big figure. But let me tell you a story. This is Newton's uh, recollection of his first time preaching. You want to hear what he said? This is what he said the first time he preached. He says, the moment I began, my eyes were riveted to the book for a fear that if I looked off, I should not readily find the line again. So he's like reading the lines. He says, thus with my head hanging down, for I was nearsighted and fixed like a statue, I conned over my lesson like a boy learning to read and did not stop till I came to the end. And most people, would they would preach you know, an hour, hour. And apparently Newton's first time preaching was like 15 minutes or something like that. He's like, I just got to read the whole thing. And I always find that quite uh, encouraging for, uh, for young pastors because, yeah, that happens. Um, Newton, he stays there. He stays in Olney until... Um, um, 1780. And while he's there, he becomes friends, we'll talk about this in a little bit, with a very famous uh, poet uh, named William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. And uh, 
Cooper, well, he had a, struggled with depression big time, and Newton really helped him quite a bit. But the two of them wrote um, hymns together, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But in, 18, in 1780, uh, Newton moves to London. Okay, and here's a picture of his church, St. Mary Woolnoth in London. And uh, when he, he arrives in London, he, he is quite, quite the People know Newton at this stage because they've been reading his account and, they, and they've been writing him letters. And, and Newton, he is so popular and that so many people were coming. And see, before Newton came, there weren't a lot of people coming to this church. Newton goes to this church and suddenly it's packed out. And so the church wardens like, man, too many people are coming, Reverend Newton. So I have an idea. And so the Reverend, so the church warden's idea was, why don't we say that you're not preaching every second week, just so that people stop coming? <laughs> like, even though you are going to be preaching, we'll just say that you're not, just to cut down the numbers. <laughs> and Newton's like, hey, that's a good idea, but no. Uh, so that's, it's kind of in a rich area, kind of in a bank district. If you go there today, dun, da, 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 still looks the same. Um, but you go inside and the church has changed quite a bit. Um, here's a picture of Newton's um, pulpit. And this is what happens when you're with a friend and nobody's around. We just take pictures of each other in the pulpit. So that's my friend in the, in the pulpit. It's, uh, it's uh, Tyson, Bra Tyson Bradley. Some of you may know him. He used to go to our church. He and I hung out in London. So yeah, nobody is around. So we just took pictures in the, in the pulpit. Um, so what I'd like to do is ask you is, is, is to talk a little bit, and I'm going to break us up in a, in a few minutes um, to have a discussion. But I want to look at, okay, how can Newton shape our lives today? And I think, man, he's, he's a companion you need to have. If you're not convinced, well, you will be in the next 10 minutes. Um, Newton was a, uh, he, his was a life that was uh, shaped by his conversion experience. Like Newton's coming to faith was such um, a dramatic event in his life. Now, it's not clear what, you know, the actual time that he came to faith, but um, when he leaves his former life and enters the new life, everything begins to change. And um, one of the key characteristics that Newton had throughout his whole life, and this is what drew people to him, was humility. And he was, uh, he was humble because um, he always knew, he knew um, where he came from. He knew that he was this horrible sinner. Like he was, he was a mess, like he was a real mess. And he knew what a mess his life was. And um, that always kept him humble. It, because, because again, every time, every time somebody would elevate him, he goes, oh yeah. He goes, what was he saying? Amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that was Newton's experience for sure. And uh, our stories can really shape our lives, right? They really can shape our, 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 our character. Um, and one of the things that Newton always tried to keep first and foremost in front of him was his conversion. Remembering, okay, remember, I was once such a sinner and God by his grace saved me. And that is a real motor for, for transformation, I think. He, uh, one time uh, he finished preaching and uh, he, he kind of comes down off the pulpit and, and one, of, one of the parishioners looks at Newton and goes, ah, oh, Reverend Newton, that was a fine message. 
And Newton goes, yeah, he goes, I know the devil already told me that. Um, I know. Yeah. And uh, he would uh, write in his diaries and he'd always refer to himself. Like you refer to his sinful side as, 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 um, as Mr. Self, capital S. He goes, ah, Mr. Self got in the way again. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just fascinating reading. Um, his, his life was a life that was, um, oh yeah, it's his, uh, his epitaph. Yeah. Oh, look at that. His, um, his life was grounded in uh, pragmatism. He was a he was a he was a real peacemaker, and this is a time period in the 18th century. Everybody's fighting about theology. Everybody's fighting about Calvinism versus Arminianism, and and everybody's just you know taking off the gloves and just battling each other. And and they kept asking Newton, "Hey, join our side." And it was like, oh. and I think I've shared this story before. But one guy wrote Newton a letter. He's about to get into a big debate with a, a non-Calvinist. It's a certain view of 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 of, of God's sovereignty. It's a Calvin has a particular view, and the 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 other side would be uh, Arminianism. Uh, we won't go into details, but it was it was a big doctrinal conflict. And uh, this one Calvinist said, uh, "Hey, John Newton, I you know I'm going to get into this big debate. What should I do?" And Newton said, "Well, before you do anything, just pray for the guy because, like it or not, you're going to spend eternity together." And I think that's, uh, that, that really speaks volumes. He says, you know, it doesn't matter if they're Calvinist or Arminian. You're going to be stuck with each other in heaven, so you may as well start getting along. And uh, he says at one point, he says, I feel much more union of spirit with some Arminians than I do with Calvinists. Uh, one time he says, Calvinism, he goes, it should be like sugar and tea. It needs to be nice and diffused. Don't take it straight up. And then and one time, Newton's, he's mentoring this young fella. And this young fella, his name's uh, John Ryland Jr. And John Ryland Jr. is reading these uh, New England Calvinists and being quite enthralled with them. And he's asking, uh, you know, John Newton, oh, what do you think? I'm reading, you know, Cotton Mather. He's this New England divine. And he goes, oh, isn't he great? And John Newton goes, yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He goes, but some of these guys, man, they have such high standards. He goes, I don't even think Moses would have made the cut. (laughs) So he's like, settle down a little bit. You know, stop getting too, too, uh, too caught up with these guys. And Newton, he, um, he was quite involved in, in people from different denominations. He's, a, he's got a huge influence on a guy named Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, um, John Ryland Jr. And they were all behind William Carey. And William Carey is one of the key um, missionaries of the 18th century. And if you look behind, and these guys are all Baptists, right? But if you look behind, who's encouraging them? Who's mentoring them? It's Newton. He's, he's Church of England, but he's still helping these guys. He's, he's an incredible guy. Never followed the church calendar, really, even though he's Church of England. Um, he's, a, he's, he's an interesting preacher, too. He wasn't, I mean, I've read his sermons. Some of his sermons are, are good. Some of them are not so good. Towards his time, the end of his time in Olney, it's quite funny because he gets a little bit lazy and... <laughs> In one of his diaries, it says, it says, this is quite interesting. He says, catched at a text on the pulpit stairs. So what does that mean? It means he only thought of the passage that he was going to preach on as he was walking up the stairs to preach. That's, that's, that's pretty last minute. Um, he's pragmatic. If you read um, John Newton's hymns and William Cooper, William Cooper's known as being this great poet, and he was. Um, 
but if you read Newton's hymns, they're so different because Newton, look at amazing grace. Think about amazing grace and think of how many syllables. Amazing. That's the longest word. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They're all one syllable. They're all very simple words because he's speaking. He's teaching his congregation who aren't that educated. He's teaching them. Uh, to sing these hymns to reinforce his sermon. And he writes them in a way that the average person can remember. And I think that's why you and I probably remember Amazing Grace, but could you name a William Cooper hymn? Maybe you could, but uh, yeah. Um, Newton, um, he even didn't like preaching very long. He always criticized people who would preach too long. He goes, ah, you know, leave people wanting more. Um, let me ask you a question. Okay, this will be a fun question. I'm going to have you guys break. You've been listening to me for a while. I'm going to have a break you into a group. Now, if, you've, if you just showed up a little bit late, I, I, I've, I've named the elephant in the room. There's nothing more awkward than being broken into a Zoom group with people you don't know. I get it. Um, so just lean in. Remember to unmute yourself when, you, when I break you into groups. Um, what I want to do, because Newton was very pragmatic. He was very pragmatic in terms of how people did church. And um, actually, let me, I'm going to ask you a different question. Actually, I'm going to ask you a different question. Um, one of the things Newton did, and we're going to come back to this, is Newton mentored a lot of people. I've used Newton's letters to mentor a lot of young people, a lot of guys, uh, young guys over the years. And uh, I was mentored through Newton's letters. Um, long time ago 20 26 years ago and so the mentoring process of newton is huge especially when he gets to london he has got young people all around him these young pastors and they're just starting and they want to know how to live their life as a christian they want to know how to pastor and they need a mentor so let me ask you this have you ever been mentored what was that experience like be brief and then uh, are you mentoring others? Okay, this is, I think, as a church, we really need to get our head around mentoring. Denise and I were chatting about this today. She's one of our people here. She works with me at the church. Um, so I'm going to break into a group. And so uh, have you been mentored? What was that like? And are you mentoring others? Okay. Does that sound cool? Thumbs up. I see some people. So thumbs up. Let's, uh, let's carry on a little bit more with, um, with uh, Newton. Um, one of the things I, I do think is important, I was, I was saying, because uh, I was actually part of a group this time. Um, one of the things that uh, I have tried to um, model my ministry after is, is Newton. Um, and part of that is, is mentoring and intentionally mentoring young uh, pastors, young people who are going into ministry. Because uh, Newton had, had such an impact. And so, I mean, and I've always found... Um, a real connection with Newton and just, just how messed up his background was is I, I realized, yeah, I, I find some similarities in just how messed up my own was. Um, there's another uh, connection that I see with Newton and, and, and it's this, when Newton sort of kind of came to faith, um, there was a change in him. Yes. But he was still pretty messed up. He, he goes back on, on, on the ship and, uh, and when he, he heads out to uh, heads out to sea, a lot of the old habits come back. 
And so Newton, even though he came to faith, he never really grew in his faith at first. Uh, he struggled at first until, until he entered into friendship. And it was a friendship with, uh, in particular, Alexander Clooney. That was a turning point for him, which I think is a reminder to us as well. It was a reminder to me because when I came to faith in Jesus, I came to faith on my own in, in China. And, uh, and then I tried to be all, you know, I tried to grow on my own. And, and uh, I've, I've shared the story before, but I went to see an old friend of mine and tell him about Jesus. And I just ended up going back drinking with him for a month. Every, every single night we got drunk. And he's like, I don't see any change in you. And it wasn't until I, um, I, I started to get mentored and, uh, and through friendship, through my friend Jeff, that I began to grow. And I think that's uh, just an important reminder is that we, we don't grow on our own. We need, we need friendships. And Newton's life uh, and his ministry was nurtured by friendships. A couple of key guys in his life are um, um, Henry Venn, who was a really interesting pastor, who lived in a place called Yelling, uh, close to uh, Newton. John Barrage. Um, uh, he's a guy I did my dissertation on, and uh, he was a bit of an eccentric, And uh, but he and Newton became good friends. They often would exchange pulpits. The three of them would actually exchange. Uh, I, wrote a, uh, I wrote a paper once on, on their friendship, and because uh, I think it's, it's, it's quite a cool friendship that they had. Again, he was the Ann Landers of the 18th century. Some of you younger people have no idea who Ann Landers is. <laughs> he was the one that everybody uh, would write letters to. Um, and one guy, one Scottish pastor once said this, he goes, um, he says with a Scottish accent, "'Tis a pity that Newton should do anything but write letters." That's exactly how he said it. Uh, but Newton was, uh, yeah, he's, he was just such a great letter writer. He taught young pastors how to put together sermons, how to trust in Jesus, how to sustain themselves in, in, in life. One of the guys who I've been studying a little bit of is a guy named Thomas Scott. Not many people have heard of Thomas Scott. 18th century fella that uh, he kind of goes on to be like the C.S. Lewis of the 18th century. He was, he was not a Christian, um, but he was a pastor. That's, that's quite common in the 18th century is people who are pastoring, but aren't, aren't really uh, saved. Uh, they're not saved. And uh, for Thomas Scott, the wake up calls, he was a pastor in this, in this one place near Olney. And uh, he's pastor again. He gets word that two of his parishioners were very sick. And he, he never bothered to visit them. But what spoke to him is that he heard that this Reverend Newton from a neighboring parish came over and visited and prayed with his dying members of his parish. And that really cut, cut Thomas Scott to the heart. Really kind of a, a catalyst for his turning point. Thomas Scott wanted to get into a big debate with Newton, wanted to get into this argument, talk about ideas, and Newton never bought it. Newton says, I'll just be your friend. And he kind of wins him over in his friendship. And that, and that was Newton. Again, he tried to, uh, he mentored a lot. Uh, he would receive pastors in, in his home for breakfast uh, at least once a week. Um, one of Newton's biggest influences was on uh, William Wilberforce, who was the uh, key guy who led brought about the abolition of the slave trade. And um, yeah, so let me just show you a picture of, uh, of, of Wilberforce. Actually, why don't I just go here? Share, yeah, save me some time. Yeah, there's a um, picture of, uh, uh, what's his name? That's John Barrage. 
and uh, that's William Cooper, a uh, little melancholy fella. Uh, William Wilberforce, and uh, when Wilberforce was just a boy, when he was just a kid, his aunt and uncle uh, took him to uh, hear John Newton preach. His mom and dad found out, they're like, ah, we have big plans for our son. He can't be going to hear an, an evangelical and enthusiast like John Newton. So they, they stopped that. But then later on, uh, when Wilberforce got older and Wilberforce started thinking about things of faith, um, he, he remembered that Uncle John, Uncle John as he called him, Uncle John Newton, was in London. And so uh, he went to visit him under the cover of night and, and told him, he says, you know, I became a Christian. And, uh, and Newton was cool. He's like, yeah, he says, uh, you can come, come and hear me uh, preach. Uh, you can hide in the side. Nobody needs to know that you're there. And you can leave after everybody else leaves. And, and um, over time, uh, Wilberforce, just his faith really grows because of Newton. And it's Newton, because Wilberforce says, you know, I'm, I've, I've come to faith in Jesus. Um, I should become a pastor. And Newton said, don't. Don't. <laughs> the parliament needs Christians more than <laughs> the church right now. And so do what you uh, got to do and stay inside uh, parliament. And, and that's where God gave him the great, two great tasks, the uh, reformation of manners, you know, the changing of, of, of society, uh, the moral condition of society, and the abolition of the slave trade. And this is where Newton really, um, in his own life, really recognized the evils of the slave trade. And when Parliament tried to say, oh, the slave trade isn't that bad, Newton says, well, let me tell you about the slave trade. And I feel horrible about this, but I'm going to, I'm going to bear witness to the evils of the slave trade. And, and Newton uh, was a, he had a major voice in, in bringing about the abolition of the slave trade through his uh, testimonies. The other thing about uh, Newton is, um, we talked about that, uh, he had spiritual exercises um, a lot of spiritual exercise. One of them is to always remember his conversion and to give thanks to God. And uh, I remember uh, Daryl Johnson, who's a pastor in Vancouver, he talks about this three by 10 exercise where you write down 10 things that you're thankful for and uh, then wait 10 minutes, then write 10 more things. It's a little more difficult. And then wait 10 minutes and then write 10 more things. And that's even more difficult. And it just cultivates a heart of thanksgiving. And, and, and Newton, that was a big part of him, um, where he remembers God's grace, right? It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved, right? Talks about, um, um, talks about studying the human heart. He says you need to listen to people very carefully. He says to study the living as well as the dead, or rather more. Converse with experienced Christians and exercise souls. What you observe of 10 persons in these different situations may be applied to 10,000s. For those circumstances vary, the heart of man, the aids of grace, the artifices of Satan in general are universally the same. He says, you know, the, the heart, the human heart's the same. So if you study people well, you get a sense of the rhythms of the heart. I think he's, I think he's right. Um, he talked about uh, spiritual exercises. Yeah, we talked about this, spiritual growth. Yeah, he talked about um, recognizing how, how people grow. And this is one of his uh, most powerful um, essays that he writes. And he talks about three stages of spiritual growth. And, oh, man, there's so much insight. He talks about young Christians. They're, they're shaped by desire. You know, they're all on fire. And, and, and God is very kind to them. But they're, they're just very zealous for for god and and they're praying and god's answering these great prayers and they're like this is easy god you know i just pray and god answers i remember when i was a brand new christian i'm like this christian life's easy i pray god answers 
He says, yeah, it doesn't stay that way. When you, as you start to mature, then your characteristic of your Christian life is, is known more by conflict. And you see this in Pilgrim's Progress and, and, uh, and different writings. But, you know, as, you, as we mature, we start to experience spiritual warfare and some of the challenges of the Christian life. And he says, when you end towards the end, you enter the area of contemplation where you begin to just say, you know what, even though life is difficult, I'm very thankful for God's grace. And Newton said he, in his life, he says that he only made it to, to, to the second. I think he made it to the third, but he, he was quite humble again. Um, fascinating stuff. And um, uh, yeah, we'll move on uh, just for sake of time. He, uh, he had spiritual exercises, really interesting exercises. He had, um, he had personal exercises, um, daily exercises. So every day, what he would do is practice at the end of the day, he would reflect, where did I experience the presence and the grace of Jesus today? And he'd write them down. And then uh, every week he would uh, try to prepare his heart for the Sabbath, he, you know, practice Sabbath. And then um, every month he would pray, he would make sure he'd prepare his heart spiritually for the Lord's Supper. And then every year he'd remember certain key dates in his life, his conversion. Um, and uh yeah in, in in his past mercies and grace and then um he would often just at the end of each year kind of resolve to make certain changes in his life he practiced new year's resolutions and different things and he was also a man who um uh who prayed oh uh, yeah before we get to prayer i want to talk about uh, spiritual dryness um, because some of us, uh, some of you are experiencing spiritual dryness. Newton has a lot to say about this because he experienced spirit, spiritual dryness in his life. Has anybody ever experienced uh, spiritual dryness? Just unmute yourself and say yes. So I'm not alone in this. Yes. 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 Well, and you know what? Here's the thing. Because many times when we experience spiritual dryness, we, 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 we wonder, you know, what's wrong with me? And sometimes we experience dryness because of decisions we made, you know, bad decisions where we're not praying, we're binging on Netflix, and we're not spending much time in God's word. I mean, there are, there are reasons why sometimes we experience dryness, but sometimes we just experience dryness even though we're seeking God. Uh, that's, I mean, that's been my experience. Um, oh, boy. Probably for... Much of the last three years, I've experienced strong, strong bouts of dryness. Now, I'll tell you, this is where guys like Newton and that are really helpful because you realize you're not alone in this, that this is part of the Christian life. It happens. And uh, Newton writes a letter to this uh, woman once talking about spiritual dryness. And uh, what does he say? I don't know if he gets the science. Of the, the, if, you, if you're a botanist, you may think that he gets it wrong, but the principle still is the same. He says, these seasons, these seasons of spiritual dryness, like fits of a toothache, isn't that funny? Uh, though troublesome are not mortal. They're not going to kill you. Uh, they're like wind to the trees, which threaten to blow them quite down. But in reality, by bowing them every way, loosen the ground about them, circulate the sap, cause them to strike their roots to a greater depth, and thereby secure their standing. If a tree were to grow all upwards, if the, I like this, if the tree were to grow all upwards and the roots not enlarge in proportion to the branches, it would lay flat upon the ground at the first storm that comes its way, right? It is equally unsafe for a believer to be too top-heavy. Isn't that awesome? 
And therefore, the Lord suits and changes his dispensations as, as they increase in gifts, knowledge, judgment, and usefulness, they may grow downwards likewise and increase in humility. Since we've been enabled to put ourselves in his hands, let us stand to our surrender and let him carry on his work in his own way. What is he saying? He's saying, you know, these seasons that we experience, um, really storms, they you know, push us side to side, side to side, but they allow us, our roots to go deeper and deeper so that we're not easily toppled. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, I've met many Christians who are top heavy and uh, their the roots have not gone down. Maybe they've studied a lot or they, they, they think they know a lot and, and they're very top heavy. They may be lots of knowledge in their brain. But um, when the storms come, they, 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 they fall over very easily. And so Newton says, you have to realize these times of dryness, they are given to us. They're not going to kill us, but they're a way to draw us closer to God and to closer into our, our love for him and, re- and recognizing his love for us. Uh, sometimes we need to be a little bit dry in order to feel thirsty. There's water all around us. We're never thirsty. So we need to be dry for a little bit. And it's kind of a theme that I've been looking at more and more, not just in Newton, but a lot of guys, uh, a lot of people talk about this, um, men and women. Uh, Teresa Davila talks about this. This is the book I'm reading right now. It's a really difficult book to read. It's just, it's just he's not an easy guy to read. But the cloud of unknowing. But his, that's one of his themes is just, you know, are we seeking God for what he gives us or are we seeking him uh, for for who he is, and and when we're deprived of things, maybe that's what's drawing us closer closer to God. Anyhow, um, I find that quite encouraging, especially if you're if you're dealing with spiritual dryness. Uh, the other thing about Newton you have to realize is that he was a man who prayed, and uh, we're going to wrap up pretty soon. Um, his prayer life, just to give you an idea, Newton he got up early, and he prayed five hours a day. Five hours a day. And he prayed for a lot of people. And the interesting thing with Newton and with guys like Barrage, the older they get, the less they're wanting to get into controversies and, and to debate or anything like that. They just want to pray. And they see the importance of prayer. And it's interesting for Newton when he's writing his diaries, somewhere along the line, pretty early on, he changes his diary format to a prayer format. So his, prayer, his, his diaries are all prayers. And uh, about, um, oh, 15 years ago, I changed my journaling to, to all prayers from simply journaling to, to let, let them be prayers. Um, again, based on Newton, he, again, he influences me all the time. Um, but one of the things that Newton says, I want to conclude with this guy. I think it's just such a beautiful picture. It's in 1785, he, he writes this letter and it's a desire in his part. Uh, let's see, born in 1725. So um, he dies in 1807. So this is in 1785. So he's, he's, he's getting, getting up there a little bit. And his desire is to keep his eyes fixed on things unseen. And this is what he, he tells of this interesting story. This is what happens. He writes these, these words. He says, when I was writing here yesterday, I had a beautiful prospect of the Isle of Wight. Some of you may have been there before, the, the Isle of Wight, and the sea from the hermitage window. So he's staying at this hermitage, and he's praying. He says, I had a beautiful view. I'm looking through the same window now, and I can see nothing of them. 
But I do not suppose the Isle of Wight is sunk because I cannot see it. I consider it, I consider that this is a thick, rainy morning, and I expect when the weather clears up, the island will be visible again. Thus it is with respect to many great truths which you and I have seen with the eye of our minds. There may be returns of dark, misty hours when we can hardly perceive them, but these should not put us on questioning whether or not we ever saw them at all. Faith and obedience are like the road we travel. The frames and feelings of our spirits are like the weather. Though the weather may often change, the road is always safe. And they who travel upon it will renew their strength as they go on. And at length, surely arrive at the end of their journey and possess the, possess, um, and possess the promised land. Isn't that a powerful picture? He says, you know, just because I can't see the Isle of Wight today, I know it's still there. And our, in our life, there's times where stuff happens and we just can't see where we're going as well as we usually can. But just because we can't see doesn't mean that the road's not there. Just because we can't see doesn't mean, you know, we're, we're not going to arrive at our destination just fine. Because God in his grace, remember in the amazing grace, um, was his, and, and grace, and grace will lead through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Um, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. No, I, I got it wrong. But there's the one that any God will lead us safely home. My mind just gone blank right now. Um, and it's just such a cool, uh, it's just such a cool image. And I can just imagine Newton sitting on a desk looking out a window and, uh, and it's foggy. And, uh, and, and, and that uh, shaping his life. Let me, um, let me just exit out of here for a second. Stop sharing. Um, I'll open it up to anyone. Any, any comments? If we've gone a little bit over time. Um, any comments about Newton? Any observations? Anything? Any takeaways? Don't forget to unmute yourself before I say something. I love that idea of um, the tree and the roots going deeper. So in spiritual dryness, um, you may not be showing all the gifts and all the leafy things and all the wisdom and knowledge and all that, but it's a chance where you can really deepen your spiritual faith, like putting roots down into the soil to find that moisture that's down there. Yeah. I, just, I love that imagery. It's, it's, it's so great. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. I love it. I love the fact that he's uh, a lot of Christians are top heavy. <laughs> I just think that's such a great, great image. <laughs> we got too much up here. Right. But the, but the, you know, our experiences don't go deep. Right. Anyone else? I was going to say that oh. I really like, Keep going. Go ahead, Lori. I was just, just going to say that I really like uh, I really like how natural he is. Um, that's how he came across to me, anyways, tonight. And he had such a, a down to earth, uh, practical way of looking at things. And the fact that he had been through uh, so much on his so much already, um, and that he he wasn't caught up in the religiosity. Um, that I sometimes imagine from that time period and still today, 
but that he was just very natural and his faith was, was absolutely a living faith. It was a real faith. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you're right on the mark and that, that is why Newton stands out. Um, not just in the 18th century. Well, he certainly stands out in the 18th century because there is a lot of religiosity. There's a lot of formality, uh, a lot of stuffiness still going on there. But uh, Newton, he's like fresh air. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, he's, he's warm. If you read his writing, again, I, I've taken youth through his, his letters and um, I've taken like high school students through his letters and, and they're just so rich and so alive. Yeah, he's very, very kind, very warm. Uh, Denise, you're going to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to, on, on that note, just wanted to attest to that. After you suggested um, John Newton, I started reading him and I started with um, his letters. And they have been so formative. It's been one of the most impactful reading I've ever done in my life. Hmm. And so inspiring. His faith and his obedience, so inspiring. And just his understanding that nothing is done in his own strength. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just really, he really understood the human heart, the fickleness of the human heart. And just, um, I also enjoyed reading um, your paper, David, on, on his life and ministry. And it's just, I just can't get enough of him. I'm just so glad that we're talking about him tonight. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, he's, he understood the human heart. You're, you're absolutely right. And he listened carefully to people. And uh, as a result, he's able to kind of get a sense of how the human heart operates. I think that's, boy, that's, as, as Christians, we, we, that's something we can cultivate. Anyone else? Any other comments? You watched him grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly grows in faith from his days in the, uh, in the slave trade, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Cool. Well, um, that's our man, John Newton. Um, mm-hmm. What we're going to do uh, next week is we're going to look at someone that I bet you've never looked at before. How many of you uh, know who Julian of Norwich is? I see that hand, Irene. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> Yeah, you got a mystic up in the top left-hand corner. Yeah, um, Julian of Norwich. She, she's somebody that uh, that we haven't actually uh, looked too much at. Um, and so, yeah, next week, uh, that's we're going to be looking at uh, Julian of Norwich. And then the following week, we're going to look at C.S. Lewis. And then we're going to hit our man, Benjamin Lay. Now, here's the other idea is as we're doing this, because it looks like, you know, we're still going to be quarantined or there's going to be restrictions for quite a while. And there's not a whole lot of summer plans going on. So I might, if you're okay with this and, and again, they're one off. So I might just keep finding companions and keep going. <laughs> and so I mean, there's, there's no shortage of companions. So we could just, our Tuesday night could be, Hey, let's look at somebody else uh, until we run out of people in church history. So that'd be about 2043 by that time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll probably just keep going um, for a little little while. Yeah, there's, I've, I'm already thinking. I thought we could do something on Bonhoeffer. He'd be interesting. Some of you don't know much. Uh, you may not have heard of Phoebe Palmer. She's really remarkable life, and she's a person we could look at. And lots of interesting people. Maybe go old school and look at Ig- Ignatius of Antioch and sitting in the back of the wagon. Gonna... 
Somebody go, oh, yeah, Ignatius. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ignatius. Uh, there's lots of people we can look at. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully your breakout sessions went okay. Um, I'm, you know, that's, uh, it is awkward, but uh, I think we're doing okay. So let me close in prayer and I will see you next week. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Lord, we were once lost, but now we're found, we're blind, but now we can see because of your grace. And thank you for your uh, servant, John Newton. What a companion he is along the way. And may we learn from him. May our lives be shaped by him. And not just, just because of him, but because of the work that you have done in his life. And uh, just how that spills over and and we see and we sense the aroma of Christ in his life. And we pray that in how we live our lives, that people would sense the aroma of Christ in our own lives. Help us to be intentional about mentoring, about leaning into and, and, and walking with young people in their lives. Um, or older people, it doesn't matter, but help us to walk with people, um, whoever you brings across our, our path. Um, may we uh, receive, but then pass on what we receive. That's our desire, Lord. So we commit, I commit each person to you tonight. Have mercy upon them. We lift up our brother Raul, still not very well. Um, he's a part of our church who's, uh, who's struggling a bit. We lift him up to you. We pray that you would have mercy upon him and bring healing to his body. And yeah, we commit uh, this week to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see you everyone. See you next week. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.